journey through the book of Acts. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 26. Uh, chapter 26. And, and I posted this last night on our Facebook page. And um, we're going to be, our, our core passage is going to be from verse 2 in 26 to verse 23. But we're actually only going to be focusing and preaching specifically in our expository manner from verses 12 to 18. Verses 12 to 18. But we're, we're going to cover all of verse 2 to verse 23. And as you're turning to, um, to Acts chapter 26, I got a little, it's been a while since I've done this, but I got a little humor for you. Um, one of the ways I like to open up the, the church service, the sermon part, if you will, is with a little humor. Um, as you're turning to Acts chapter 26, uh, I, I got a little story for you. So there's a Sunday school teacher, her name's Miss Terry. And, and Miss Terry asked the Sunday school class the, her, of her children there to, to draw a picture of their favorite Bible story. And um, she's walking around the class and she's collecting the pictures. And, and she stops at Kyle's desk and she looks down at Kyle's uh, paper and he's, he's drawn an airplane with four people in it. And um, she, she's puzzled by, by the picture, so she asks uh, Kyle, she says, Kyle, uh, how, how do you, what, what, what's your picture about? How do you explain this? And she said, he, oh, he, he told her, he said, well, Miss Terry, this is, this is a, uh, a picture of the flight to Egypt, of the flight to Egypt after Jesus was born. And she said, okay, so she said, so she, said she saw four people there, so she's like, well, I see baby Jesus, and I see Joseph, and I see Mary, the, uh, the mother, but Who's the fourth person? And Kyle looks up at Miss Terry and he said, Well, Miss Terry, that's Pontius the Pilot. And um, so that's Pontius the Pilot. So uh, a little bit of uh, mixture there of who, 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 what some biblical stories there, but he, he thought Pontius Pilate was Pontius the Pilot. So um, anyway, uh, a little, little bit of humor there this morning as, as we start our, uh, our sermon part of our service here. And what I want us to listen to today, I'm not going to read all 20. Um, 21 verses, uh, but I am going to read verses 12 through 18, 12 through 18, because that's going to be the center of our text. But as we read this, I, I like, I'm like i reading from the New American Standard Bible, and um, but if you're reading from whatever translation, I assure you I'm going to break it down so we can understand what God's Word is telling us today. So let's start in verse 12 of Acts 26, and it says, While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have, I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your words. 
this morning. We thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you that Paul tells Timothy in his letter that uh, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, reproving, education of the Christian. We pray that today as we go through and we're finishing up our journey to the book of Acts that we, we look at this Paul's fourth apologetic. As he's given his defense of his faith through this whole period of time to many different people, we pray that we can glean from it how we should be living our lives. And we pray that if there's somebody out here today who doesn't know Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that has not yet surrendered to the will of the Father, that they'll come to know Jesus. We thank you for this time. We pray that we're edified today as we go through this passage of Scripture. And it's in the name of Jesus we do so humbly pray. Amen. Amen. So, I, I've entitled this, um, A Come to Jesus Meeting. See, Paul, in his, in his uh, journeys in the book of Acts, from Acts 13 to the rest of the book, uh, Acts 28 here, uh, is, is strictly about Paul's missionary life. And it covers a vast span of time. And in this, the end of the book of Acts, as, as we're getting ready for his journey to Rome... And he's on that journey right now as he's giving his testimony or his, his apologetic. He's, he's already given an apologetic four different times. Uh, Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 22 is the first one. The second one takes place in Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. And the third takes place in Acts chapter 24, verses 10 through 21. But what is an apologetic? What is an apology? In English, we look at an apology and we say, oh, I'm sorry. Or, I, I, I apologize for what I've done to you. But that's not the context here. The Greek word apologia literally means to make a defense. To make a defense. But it's not a defense as one would make, necessarily make in a court of law. It's a defense about what we believe. So if I give you an apologetic this morning, or as we listen to Paul's apologetic, he's, he's using it as a testimony to explain why he believes the way he does. That's what an apologetic is. It speaks to experiences in life, the experiences we have, right? It's, it's, it, it speaks to what's changed and why. And it explains our transformation, why we believe what we believe. And it's testified to by newness of action or newness of life. And believe it or not, I'm going to use the word, I'm going to use the word catered. It can be catered to a specific audience, but I don't mean catered as in we tell people what they want to hear. Well, what you would notice if you've gone back and you've looked at Paul's different apologetics, all of them are spun a little bit differently. The core of the story is exactly the same, but the premise for the, the, uh, the wording of his apologetic changes as his audience changes. He, he uses the, the common vernacular of the day, in this case it was Greek, as he's speaking to address King Agrippa, which is who he's addressing here. And he's addressing uh, Festus, the governor of Festus, who, re who uh, relieved uh, Felix. And he, the reason he's using the words and he's telling the story as he's done, and we'll cover that here very shortly, is he's trying to get across and he's talking to a specific audience. King Agrippa is the same as King, uh, his King Herod Agrippa, and he's also the Herod the Great, the Tetrarch of the area. So this is a, a grandchild of that Herod, this Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa here, and he's, he's telling him as king of the Jews, so he's a Jewish person and he's also a Roman official, he holds two offices, he's appealing to this man. So that, that's why this, 
this story, his, his story doesn't change, but he might um, change the way he tells it, depending on his audience. As we might, in our own lives, as we're giving a testimony of our faith, or we're, we're giving a testimony, which is an apology of why we are the way we are, why we believe in what we believe, we often change the way we tell the story, depending upon who our audience is. So what we have to understand is that we're still going through a little bit of background. In, in, in this fourth apologetic, the, uh, the last time after the third apology there in Acts chapter 24, um, verses uh, 22 through pretty much all of 25, it, it, uh, chapter, chapter 25, it, it gives a, a kind of a history, a narrative of what happens. Felix steps down, and this guy named Festus comes in as the governor, and Paul appeals to Caesar. Um, in the beginning of Acts chapter 25, he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. That's a right that he has. And he, he, and he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem and face those guys because they want to kill him. And they have pleaded with the Roman government to let him go. And Festus, being a wise ruler of the area, a Roman governor of that area, says no. Uh, he asks Paul why he won't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, because they seek my life. And I'm a Roman citizen, and I appeal to Caesar. And uh, Festus says, well, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. But because of the uniqueness of Agrippa coming to the area, and Festus knows very little about Jewish law, he wants King Herod to hear Paul's defense of himself. And that's where we're at now in Acts chapter 26. Paul is given a, an a, a opportunity to present his testimony or his apologetic to King Agrippa and all those who are with him. The whole entourage of King Agrippa and Governor Festus are all there. Um, he's got a captive audience, if you will. So let's let's look here in the first couple verses, uh, uh, verses 2 and 3. We're going to get to the main part of our message here, but I've got to give you some background of how we, why, why Paul is speaking the way he's speaking. So if you read verses 2 through 3, he says... Um, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So these first two verses is, um, I, and I don't really know Latin very well, so if I butcher this and you're listening at home and you're a Latin expert, don't, don't uh, crucify me, but... This, 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 this little opening of Paul's introduction to his defense is called a capicio benevolente. And it's Latin for um, a flattering uh, appeal to his listener. And Paul knows that he's speaking to Agrippa. There, everybody else who's there is there because King Agrippa's there. So Paul is addressing King Agrippa. And this is uh, this uh, beginning introductory. It's oftentimes used for flattering one's um, audience to uh, build favor with them or rapport with them, and um, uh, it helps to curry favor from the listener, to basically get them on their good side. So what we have to understand here is he's, he's citing Agrippa as an expert. He, Paul may be giving Agrippa a little bit more credit than he's due, um, because Agrippa was a Hellenistic Jew. It means he lived a Roman lifestyle, but he still claimed his Jewish roots. Um, but he does offer a unique perspective in that he knows Jewish law and he knows the Roman law as from both political and practice side. So he can give a, a sound judgment um, based on Paul's defense. 
So in verses 4 through 8, Paul, Paul talks about his life as a Pharisee. He lived as a Pharisee among the strictest sect of their faith. And he uses the word hope three times in verses 4 through 8. What I want us to understand is the word hope that Paul uses is el pizzo. And el pizzo means to look forward to something with strong confidence. To look forward to something with confidence. So Paul mentions the hope of the Jewish people is the, is the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he even says, he even says that that's what he's on trial here today for. That's why he's offering this testimony because of this. Because he says in verse, verse 8, and for this hope, oh, excuse me, verse 7, and for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. And in verse 8, he says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So he's, he's building up to his, to his, in his testimony here, his witness. And then he, then he confesses his sins. He confesses his past sins. In verses 9 through 11, he confesses his past sins. He says, he felt... He felt as a loyal Jew, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he had to um, destroy Christianity because it was taken, taken away from the practices and the righteousness of, the Jew, of, Jew, of Judaism, of Jewish faith. So he ended up casting people to their death. Not only, Paul's admitting this in verses 9 through 11, not only did he, uh, did he go out and seek people and bring them bound in chains back to Jerusalem to be addressed by the uh, Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, he also approved of them being stoned or killed uh, or murdered, if you will. And, and we, have, um, we have reference to that in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when we had the stoning of Stephen. Um, <clears throat> Paul was there, he collected the garments. Not only was this, was this significant as Paul's building up to the passage we're going to cover here in a few moments, Paul was basically saying, hey, I even was so devout and so zealous that I, I pursued Christians outside of Judah and Jerusalem, which is how we got on the Damascus Road. See, he says in verse 12, while so engaged, seeking them in foreign cities, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests with the authority and permission of the chief priests. That should give you some idea of the credibility and the viability Paul had to do the job that he was doing. He wasn't doing that on his own accord. No, he sought permission. He sought permission from the Sanhedrin to squash Christianity. He sought permission to do so. In verse 13, he says, and at midday, so around noontime. So if you go back to Acts chapter 9, you can read the initial account of what happened. But he's, as he's retelling this account, remember, he's talking to King Agrippa. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice. When he had fallen down, he heard a voice. And it, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And in verse 15, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why is that significant? Why is that significant? See, because persecuting Christians is identical with persecuting Christ. 
What you do to Christians, you're ultimately fighting against God. Are we to believe at this day that we are better than Paul or any other Christian that walked the face of the earth that was persecuted or is persecuted? We're reading a passage of scripture in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. John 15, 18 through 21. It says, Jesus is speaking. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they did not know the one who sent me. Jesus himself told us that we would face persecution. And it was at the, man, at the hands of this man, Paul, that Christians faced perhaps their, their worst persecution up to that point in time in history. What does it mean to kick against the goads? Well, that's an interesting, interesting question. You know, it's actually a Greek and, and or Roman idiom. It's a, a, a euphemism, a figure of speech that, to, that basically references, uh, as a farming reference, if you will, of a donkey being driven by his master and the donkey's kicking back against the master's commands. Whether he's pulling a cart and kicking the cart or whatever the case may be, he's, the donkey is working against his master, and it typically works out worse for the donkey in the long run. So Jesus is asking him, is it, it is hard for you to kick against the goat. You're, you're, it's hard for you to work against yourself. Contextually, Paul must conclude that his actions are fighting against God himself. The very faith that he says he has in Judaism as a Jew, he's fighting against and persecuting the Christian. Interestingly enough, Paul's zealous desire to defend Judaism and his life of righteousness acts causes him to be blind to reality. We see a, another passage of Scripture in the book of Acts, chapter 5. We see a similar statement. As we all know, Paul was a student of the rabbinical teacher Gamaliel, as he tells us in another part of uh, his letters. And as a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, Acts, chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, give a story how Gamaliel, a rabbinical Jew teacher, respected by everybody, gives advice to the Sanhedrin concerning Peter and John. Listen as we start reading in verse 35 of Acts chapter 5. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, 
you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. That was Gamaliel's thinking about the council wanting to kill Peter and John for their preaching in Jerusalem. He got it. He understood that if you continue persecuting something, you're going to end up working against yourselves. Because if it's the desire and will of God for this to succeed, then it will. And it is the desire of God for this to succeed. Now we're going to get into the part where I believe is the, the meat of our passage this morning. Paul's commission. Paul's commission. This is a come to Jesus meeting. Paul is re, re, retracing his steps in the account of his come to Jesus meeting. The time that Jesus Christ called him. Have you been called by Jesus Christ? He says to him, Anistini, stand on your feet, is what he says. In verse 16, get up and stand on your feet. Anistini. It's the same instruction given to Ezekiel in chapter 2, verse 1. Show a reverence to God, humility, and acknowledgement of one's position. He bowed low in humility to the light and to the voice. And then Jesus says, stay on your feet. i got a job for you. The next, the next phrase uses three words, and I'm, I'm not a Greek guy, so I can't really pronounce all of them. But he says, this is what he says. Appoint you a minister and a witness. He appoints him a minister and a witness. The, the, appointation, the, the, the appointed verb is something, literally means he selected him beforehand, and the word minister is actually assistant. Jesus is saying, I have appointed you, I selected you from while long ago, and in Galatians he actually admits to that, that he was called from early on before he knew it to the service of the Lord. And in the service of the Lord, the minister is an assistant to God. And you remember back in the Old Testament, they were to minister to the Lord. Ministering to the Lord literally means to be the assistant of God on the earth. That's my job, to be his assistant. I'm supposed to help teach and train and equip the saints to go about and do the work of the Lord. Assist in sharing Christ's work. And he was a witness to everything Christ does or did. Is what it says in verse 16. Not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. You know the word witness is the Greek word uh, martus, which means martyr. That's the same word we use for martyr in the English language. Martyr. And as, if you think about martyr, the first thing that comes to most people's minds is death. Death. Somebody dies. When they're, they're, they're martyred, they die for a cause they're considered to be a martyr. doesn't necessarily have to be for a religious thing. It could be for any cause. They were martyred for their beliefs. Martyred. Ironically, as a witness for Christ, we're going to suffer persecution, as Jesus told us, and other parts of the Bible tell us. We, we could and probably will suffer persecution one day in our Christian life. And we should be willing to go to the point of death for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at this in verse 17. He says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, 
Why is he rescuing Paul from anyone? Well, he's rescuing Paul from the very faith that blinded him to the reality of life. See, that's what Jesus does. That's, that's the reason that song, Love Lifted Me, was played. While sinking deep in sin, love lifted us. And, and his love and his, his decision for Paul to call him into ministry, he was lifting him out of his despair. And he's rescuing him from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. You know, God is our refuge and our protector. In Jeremiah 1.8, he says, God tells Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. In Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, the sons of uh, uh, Korah say this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There's three times in the Old Testament the word Ebenezer is used, and Ebenezer means stone of help or rock of help. And Paul says in Romans 8, 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? He's a, Paul's a messenger to the Gentiles, and this is where we really, really get hit home. This is an emotional passage if you read it. And you allow the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and tell you what Jesus does. Because Jesus is telling Paul, this is what I'm going to do to you, and this is what you're going to do for everybody else. He said, I'm ascending you to the Gentiles, in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Wandering around in darkness is a dangerous thing. You know, we can see at night. We can see. But if you've ever noticed, if you've ever studied the human eye, at nighttime, your pupil gets really, really big because the little black hole in the middle of your eye, that's your pupil. And it has to get bigger at night so it can absorb more light. So it refracts the light in the back for the corneas so you can see things. Interestingly enough, when it's bright outside, your pupils constrict because it doesn't need to absorb that much light. That's why when you go to the eye doctor, they give you those cool-looking sunglasses when you leave so you can see when you go out because you'll be blinded because your eyes are dilated. The open-the-eyes context is to show the error in their ways. He's showing Paul the error in his ways here, and Paul's admitting this. He's confessing this, that he was living a sinful life before Jesus. And he's, his eyes have been opened. He's seen Jesus. He's had a come to Jesus meeting. He's had a revelation. And he says, And from the, the dominion of Satan to God, leave the dominion of Satan. Many people walking in darkness, serving themselves, self-centeredness, they think they're serving themselves, but really what they're serving is the pride of life. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about the three main sins that occurred in the garden. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And all those build up to the pride of life because, see, if we put self above God, then we're serving Satan. Because that's what Satan wants. It's not what God wants. If we do anything that God doesn't want in our lives, then what we've done is we've elevated ourselves to a position of authority in our own life that is not rightfully ours. 
And the same thing happened to Satan in Isaiah 14. If you read that passage of Scripture, it talks about the he ascended to the third heaven. He ascended to the throne of God to be like him. The bright morning star, which is Satan, Lucifer, the angel of light. See, following the satanic path of sin is a prideful life. But what we have to understand is if you're following the dominion of Satan and you're a slave to sin, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans, you're a slave to sin, you're eternally separated from God. We, well, I hope you understand that this morning. What Jesus is telling Paul that his job was to teach and preach and all these, these letters that Paul wrote to all these different churches and that we read today and how we apply that to our lives. The job of the Holy Spirit, if we say we believe in Jesus, is to continue to teach us the oracles of God. But if we don't know who Jesus Christ is, then the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to come and convict the world of sin. Convict the world of sin. And I promise you, if you have a hard time letting something go, it's probably sinful. If you are watching this right now and you have a hard time forgiving somebody, that's sin. If you have a hard time letting go of an addiction, that's sin. If you have a hard time letting go of anything you own, that is sin. We should hold everything so loosely that it doesn't matter if we lost all today or tomorrow or not. Because at the end of the day, if we elevate anything that's so important in our lives that we put it above God, that's a sin. That's called idolatry, and we're walking a very, a very wide path straight to hell. You know, there's a, there's a sermon that was preached, and I forget the preacher who did it, but he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it at church, at a church service. What we don't understand here in our country is that we are spoiled rotten. I'm a patriot. I'm a conservative. But I believe that serving the Lord is more important than my patriotism. I believe that serving the Lord is more important than my political views. I believe that serving the Lord and doing what's best for my fellow man is more important than my rights. However unalienable and given to me by the forefathers and all those other people. The only right I have of my own life is to submit to the very will of God. And every Christian should say the exact same thing. We get so caught up in what we believe in our entitlement attitude of what is ours and what our rights are that we forget that God is in control of all things. And the moment we start to idolize our patriotism, the moment we start to idolize what our rights are in our Constitution, the moment we start to idolize any of that, we've taken that and we put our, ourselves as an American citizen, and we've idolized it to the point that we fail to serve God. Our country is tearing itself apart right now. Because of the pandemic. And believe it or not, I, I have my own particular views that are very conservative on how we should and shouldn't handle things. But I find myself constantly questioning, am I acting out of love or am I acting out of comfort? 
A good friend of mine, a Christian friend, lives in, in Tennessee, uh, near Chattanooga. He and I had a very heated discussion this week via Facebook Messenger back and forth about, and he's a conservative Christian. And at the end of the day, what all this boils down to, all this pandemic and quarantine and everything else like that, the economy tanking and everything else like that. He, he, made, he made a valid point that I thought was valid because I searched and searched this week. Do we value our comfort or our quality of life over somebody else's life? People are going hungry. There's help for that. People are jobless and need money. There's help for that. People are, are depressed and lonely and, and suicidal. There's help for that. If we leave the dominion of Satan and the lie that we bought into and our selfishness as Americans and our entitlement attitude, if we walk away from that and we walk toward the dominion of God, which is light, we'll find that we left the darkness and gone into the light. Walking in righteousness. Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. After loving God, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that love, that self-sacrificing love, Paul echoes in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, is we're supposed to put the needs of others above the needs of ourselves. Can't have your cake and eat it too. See, so and then Jesus promises two things. If they leave the dominion of Satan, if they leave darkness and go to light, leave the dominion of Satan and turn to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's Jesus' word. So two things happen when two things happen when you turn from Satan to God. The first thing that happens is you receive forgiveness of sin. Praise God! Hallelujah! You remove the barrier of sin from your life. The one thing keeping you from communion with God is sin. And when you yield to Jesus Christ and accept his atoning sacrifice on the cross, and you, you throw away your selfishness, you throw away your, your conceitedness, you throw away your self-centeredness, you walk away from Satan and you turn to God, an act of repentance is turning from sin. When you do that, you take the one thing keeping you from God, and that's sin, and you throw it away. And once you take that chasm, or that block, or that wall, and you break it down by being humbling yourself to the Lord, now you have communion with Him. Oh, but it sounds so simple. It's not. Because there's a cost to discipleship in Jesus Christ. There's a cost. You have to let go of things. See, you can't hold on to you can't hold on to the things It's not you and your money, you and your material possessions, you and your lifestyle, you and your rights, you and any of this stuff. It's not you and anything. It's you and you alone that God wants. If you bring anything with you, then you have to surrender to God. You know, confession is good. My, my, my father was raised Catholic. My, my grandparents are Catholic. And 
And um, well, one of the things I, I heard a lot growing up is confession is good for the soul. We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. He's waiting for you to confess your sins to him because he wants to forgive you. And I don't want to make a slight against any other denomination, but you know what's great when Jesus Christ says, bless you, my child, you're forgiven. You don't have to go back and back and back and back and, and, and do all these penance acts with a, a necklace or anything. You're, you're forgiven. Once and for all, done. Finito. And then the second promise is we receive an inheritance. We become co-heirs with Israel. And if you want to read more about being a co-heir with Israel, read Romans chapter 11 as Paul explains that. Because we're set apart because of our faith, not because of our works. And because we have faith, our actions and our works are going to reflect the faith that we have. Go down to verse uh, 20. The last part of verse 20. He says that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Deeds appropriate to repentance. You want to know why that's important? Because it's evidence of new life. If you truly are a creature of Christ, if you truly are been born again, you become a new creature. You're a brand new person once you're in Jesus Christ. Yeah, you might fall out of discipleship and you might, you might stumble and make mistakes along the way. But if you're a new creature in Christ, every decision you make, every thought you have about anything should be different than what it was before. You have to change your, it changes your mindset. It changes your lifestyle. It's a complete transformation. It's not just a lip service because you have this knowledge in your brain, this cognitive ability to say, yeah, I probably ought to do that. You're going to be sold out to Jesus. That's what he wants. That's discipleship. And the call to discipleship and the call to salvation are very, very close. You, you can call to salvation via the Holy Spirit. You confess your sins and you seek discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And your life will be changed forever. So I have a few questions this morning. A few questions. Have you ever had a come to Jesus meeting? Have you ever had a come to Jesus meeting? Are you walking in darkness? The darkness of sin, of doubt, of trouble, or, or, or idolatry, or adultery, or, or any kind of addiction that you're struggling with? Are you walking in that darkness, wandering around where the light switch is, where the light switch is Jesus? Maybe right now at this time, Something's happened in our life that has taken us away from walking toward God and walking with God, and we've shifted off on our own little segue to walk on the path that we choose. If that's you today, you can fix that too. I, I challenge you from wherever you are right now that if you're walking away from God, that you stop what you're doing and you walk to God. Run to Him. He'll flip the light switch on for you. It'll get you out of the dark. And it's not, you know, the funny thing about light, for all you physics people, light is light exists in two ways. Light exists as a particle and a wave. Light can bend around the corner. Light can cast shadows because light permeates darkness. There's nothing that light won't reveal. God already knows it all. Bear it to him. He and only he can save you. Let's pray. Most gracious, everyone.